This morning, we are starting a sermon series um, that I've been preaching for a year and a half. And I've done it in sections so that I didn't take a whole year of Sunday mornings to go through a sermon series on one book. And that's the book of Exodus. Some of you are familiar with the Exodus sermon series. Uh, We've been through uh, section one, section two, and section three. This morning, we will begin section four. And we're going to be here in section four of Exodus for as long as it takes to get through. My guess is two months, maybe three months. But um, excited to get back into it. I've got a long intro this morning. Um, partly because I just kind of want to get our minds back focused into the book of Exodus. And if you have, if you have interest in this style of teaching, if you want to get caught up entirely on the whole book of Exodus, all of our uh, sermons are available on all your podcast places. Our sermon uh, platform is called The Word from the Well. Uh, you can access it in the church app which is also very important. If you're a note taker, why? Are there more note things back there? If you're a note taker, you need to get here earlier. (laughs) We'll print more next week. This particular sermon series is difficult to keep notes on. It's very content rich. I have to move fast. I have 10 full pages of notes this morning, so if I spent just four minutes reading each page, it'd take 40 minutes for me to get through. Um, There's no way for me to even address all the content in my notes. And so um, all of my notes are available inside of the church app. If you'll go to the church app, hit featured, you'll see sermon notes. You could literally follow me this morning if you wanted. Uh, But those notes can be saved. You can save them to your phone, do whatever you want with them, go back and study later. Um, But with all that said, Let's get to the sermon this morning. I do not have an opening verse because uh, there's just so much I'm covering. So I'm just going to open us in a word of prayer this morning and then we will get straight to our message. Father, we are honored to be able to gather and worship you. Uh, Lord, what a beautiful day. What a beautiful group of people, God, that have gathered to worship you. God, I pray this morning that you would help me to teach your word uh, accurately And clearly, like in a way that every person understands the message this morning, uh, God, I pray that uh, you would anoint our ears to hear, our eyes to see. God, I pray that through this, you would be revealed, that you would be lifted up, that you would be exalted, Lord. Help us to know you better this morning. God, I do pray that uh, you would save the lost, heal the sick. Do the types of things only you can do. Move amongst us, Lord, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're going to get to Exodus uh, 19 and 20 here in just a moment, but uh, I want to kind of, let's just assume nobody's been through any of this study, nobody knows any of the previous 19 sermons so far. This is uh, sermon number 20 this morning. And so let's just, I'm going to assume nobody knows anything that we've gone through. I want to give you a recap to kind of get our minds back into the theme 
of Exodus. So first of all, it's, it's important to know that most of the books of the Bible have a theme, something that it is generally trying to stay or adhere to. And uh, Genesis and Exodus have two themes. Genesis, from a historical theme, is about the beginnings. It's about how did it all start. And historically, it is meant to give us an understanding of how the earth came to be. But from a theological point of view, the theology that Genesis is trying to communicate is one of God's sovereign choice. That God chooses his sons and daughters with his sovereignty in ways beyond our ability to fully understand. Shem is chosen from the three sons of Noah. Abraham is just chosen to start this nation of Israel. And then with each of Abraham's uh, sons, grandson, and great-grandsons, Isaac is chosen over Ishmael. Jacob is chosen over Esau. Joseph is chosen over his 12 brothers. I mean, the whole theme, theologically, is that God chooses us, not the other way around. Now, when we get to Exodus, which we're studying, the historical part of Exodus is this story of God delivering his people out of slavery. It's also a history book about actual events that occurred. But from a theological point of view, the entire book is about redemption. And God chooses to teach us about redemption Redemption, not through long theological statements, but through the actual life and story of the people of Israel. For example, the first section of Exodus is chapters 1 through 6. And what we have in chapters 1 through 6, we have a bunch of slaves. People who need to be redeemed. Now, redemption is an important word to understand. What redemption means, it means to be purchased back. So, you need to understand what that word means. If the whole theme of the book of Exodus is about redemption, we need to understand what being redeemed means. It means literally to purchase something back legally. That for one reason or another, this thing or this person belongs legally to another. And in order to legally take that thing back or that person back, a price must be paid, and when that price is paid, that thing or that person is redeemed. And so we have a people that need to be redeemed. They are slaves owned by Pharaoh under the rule of Egypt. And then in chapters 7 through 11, we see the power of the Redeemer. We see that this one who redeems has power over kings. He's got power over the earth. He's got power over nature. He's got power over the animals. He's got power over the, the skies. He's got power over it all. He is a powerful redeemer who is ultimately the God of heaven and earth. And then we see how he redeems through the blood. When we see the death of the firstborn. And we see that there was a lamb that could be slain in place of the firstborn. 
And then we see the character of the Redeemer in the third section, which is what we just finished a few months back, the third section of Exodus. We see the character of the Redeemer. We see a God that not only does He redeem, but He leads His people tenderly. He led them with the cloud of pillar and fire. He gives them water when they're thirsty. He gives them food when they're hungry. He is a God of mercy and grace. And we finish our final sermons, the, the, the final passage that we finished in this, uh, I think it was uh, Sermon 18 and 19, was out of Exodus chapter 17. And for those of you that were here in that study, you'll remember we did Exodus 17 in two sermons. The first part, we studied the water that flowed from the smitten rock. So, We've, 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 we've covered all the journey of Israel up to the giving of the Ten Commandments, which is about to happen. We've covered all this journey of Israel. They get to a place where they're thirsty again. They're whining again. And God tells Moses to smite the rock and water would flow. And if you remember, not only does water flow, but it flows like a river. And we learn that this is a picture pointing forward to Christ who would be the smitten rock. And that the flowing of the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke of that would flow like rivers out of us. That that flowing of the Holy Spirit could not come until the rock was smitten. But once the rock was smitten, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would come. And we see in the New Testament fulfillment of that in Acts chapter 2. The very next sermon, we see them fighting with having war with Amalek. It's the second part of Exodus chapter 17. And we learned a very important lesson. This was where we left it off. This was the last sermon in this series, War with Amalek. And we learned a very important lesson. That true spiritual warfare doesn't really begin until we have received the Holy Spirit, we have been born again, we are truly sons and daughters of God. But we learn the reality that there is a war for the sons and daughters of God. That truly receiving Christ, that truly uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit, that truly being redeemed, does not mean a life of peace and earthly peace and earthly calm where Everything works out for us and we don't have battles and we don't have struggles. Rather, it means the exact opposite. Now that we have become the sons and daughters of God, we are at war with Amalek. And we learned that the real secret of winning spiritual war is keeping our eyes towards heaven and our hands raised up towards God, right? Remember Moses would raise his hands when they were battling Amalek and Israel would prevail. But he eventually got tired. It was a long battle. And his hands would come down. And as his hands would come down, the enemy would prevail. So Moses got one on his right, one on his left. And what they do, they helped lift up those hands. A very important picture of our job to help one another keep our hands held high in our moments of weakness. All of that leads us here. And I actually want to get to chapter 19. 
but I don't want to do the most exhaustive sermon series ever on Exodus and skip chapter 18. Because somebody will point it out. So rather than skip it, I'm going to give you three minutes on it. Chapter 18 is really like this parenthesis, this comma in the book of Exodus. Where Moses is on his way back to his, really his homeland. If you remember, he lived for 40 years in the wilderness, uh, got married, had kids. And Moses was an older man, like 80 years old, when God met Moses at the burning bush. And God sends Moses back to Pharaoh. Everything happens with Pharaoh. We're talking a matter of months. And eventually the people are led through the Red Sea. And now they're coming back towards where Moses lived for 40 years. And in chapter 18, Moses' wife, his sons, and his father-in-law hear that Moses is on his way. They hear that God has delivered just like God said he would. And in chapter 18, there's this family reunion. And Jethro, and, which is Moses' father-in-law, and uh, Moses' wife and his kids, they all reunite with Moses. And the, really, in my opinion, the most important part of chapter 18 is this. Jethro takes a look at these millions of people that are following. And he sees that Moses is constantly, all day long, meeting the needs of the people. And Jethro says, Moses, you cannot do this. You have got to find a way to delegate responsibility. You're going to wear yourself out. You'll wear the people out too. Like everyone's going to get worn out if you're the only single person they can go to. And so all, so much of chapter 18 is this putting in process of adding spiritual people who can help with the leadership over the people of Israel. And then it's like, boom, we catch our story back up in chapter 19, which is where we come to now. So, all right. Exodus chapter 19. I want to read verses 1 through 6 to get us started. This, this starts the fourth section of the book of Exodus. Israel at Mount Sinai. Beginning in verse 1 of Exodus 19, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What happens here at the mountain is a fulfillment of God's promise to Moses. Remember, Moses had fled Egypt and was living in the wilderness with his father-in-law and his wife and children, after 40 years in this wilderness area, in the desert, God appears to Moses there at the burning bush. 
Let's look what God told Moses at the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10 and verse 12. God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. When we pick up in Exodus 19, that is where they are. What God told Moses in Exodus 3, you will bring the people and serve me on this mountain, it has come to pass. Many difficulties have stood in the way. Pharaoh said no. The people murmured. Ten plagues. The Red Sea. No food. No water. Yet through it all, God did exactly what God said he was going to do. And we cannot miss it, brothers and sisters, that when God has declared a thing, it will always come to pass. We don't understand what's going to happen between here and there. God doesn't always fill in all the pieces and tell us every single detail of how difficult it's going to be or how he's going to deliver us. But when God says a thing is going to be, it always comes to pass. No word of God can fail. Proverbs 19.21 says it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now, note carefully what God said to Moses in verse 12 of chapter 3. This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. You shall serve God on this mountain. As if Moses needed any more signs. As if Pharaoh needed any more signs. As if Israel needed any more signs that God had sent them. Or Egypt or anybody else in the world. Remember, when God speaks to Moses at Exodus 3, and he tells Moses, this shall be the sign to you that you will worship me on this mountain. All the people will be here. That's the sign, is that you and the people will worship me here. Now, Moses didn't know what was going to happen between then and then, right? But God did. God knew he was going to send ten plagues. God knew he was going to part the Red Sea. God knew he was going to show up as a pillar of cloud and fire. God knew he was going to turn the waters of uh, Mira that were bitter to sweet water. God knew he was going to send water from the rock. God knew he was going to send manna from heaven. And yet God doesn't mention any of those things. He says, here, when the people are here at this mountain, this shall be a sign to you that I sent you. This is important because God's making sure Moses knows that what's about to happen here at this mountain is really important. And when you get here, you need to remember it is I who brought you here. You will have already witnessed the judgment of God upon Egypt, the power of God at the Red Sea, the guiding hand of God in the pillar of cloud and fire, the mercy of God in all of his provisions. But here, you're going to witness something else, Moses. You will witness the majesty of God lifted up on high. 
as God gives to them and to us and to the world forever, his law. It's here at Mount Sinai they would witness him exalted. God exalted on high. Here God would give the Ten Commandments. And I'm going to come back to the Ten Commandments. That's where we're going to go to this morning. But I want us to to consider some things about the law. The commandments of God. Speaking of what would come in the last days, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. This prophetic word has been fulfilled before our very eyes. Lawlessness abounds on every side. Men are bent on pleasing themselves. Authority is openly rejected. Discipline is mocked. Parental control has been handed over to the children. Marriage has degenerated into a thing of convenience. Now the point cannot be missed. That's what Jesus said, Matthew 24 and verse 12. Here's the point that we cannot miss. The New Testament, era of grace, in no way promotes lawlessness. Lawlessness is a terrible thing. And when lawlessness abounds... Hearts grow cold. And we have seen a coldness absolutely sweep this world. The church has grown cold as well because lawlessness abounds even in the church. What I want to demonstrate this morning is that the law of God is forever. It does not change. It is not obsolete. That the law of God stands. You know, the supreme test of love is the desire or effort to please the one you love. That's really the supreme test. If you love somebody, truly what you want to do is please that person. If you love somebody, you're going to have some degree of idea of what do they want? What is their will? And if you really love them, you're going to want to try to to bring that to pass. So for us, the supreme way of showing God that we love him is by being obedient to his known will. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus' prediction of rampant lawlessness does not stand alone. Jude spoke of those who reject authority and who blaspheme the glorious ones. Those who reject people that are in positions of authority and blaspheme those that stand in those positions. The Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 2.19, speaking of these types of people, that they promised them freedom. But, They themselves are slaves of corruption. 
I want to say it again. Nowhere in the New Testament does it ever promote lawlessness. Rather, the exact opposite is true. There are teachers today who will tell you that the law of God is not binding on men anymore, especially the Christian man. That because a person, when he becomes new, all the responsibilities of the old are no longer valid. There are teachers who will argue that when we receive the Holy Spirit, we no longer need the law to guide us and direct us. They deny that the law of God, or as I will demonstrate, the Ten Commandments being the law of God, they deny that it is the rule of conduct. They deny that it is the standard by which we should live. Now I'm going to make a statement that is a personal statement. And so I'm just clarifying what I'm telling you is a personal statement. It's my opinion that the idea that if a man has the Holy Spirit, he no longer needs the law to teach him, I think it's just downright stupid. I mean, if we really go with that line of thinking, I mean, why even read the Bible at all? I don't need the law to teach me what's wrong. Then Why do I need this to teach me what's right? If the Holy Spirit lives in you and the Holy Spirit is God and the Holy Spirit as God knows all things and therefore teaches all things, why'd you waste your time even showing up this morning to listen to me? I mean, if God's word itself is not needed for you, why are mine? It is really such utter nonsense. It doesn't even... Makes sense. That's why I use the word nonsense. The reality is that the law of God reveals to us the heart of God. And because it is God's, it is like Him. It is love. It is mercy. It is grace. And if we love God, we should love His law. Consider in the New Testament book of Romans, which by the way, Romans and Hebrews are the two greatest New Testament books that teach us about the passing away of the Old Covenant. I'll get to that in a moment. That teach us about the superiority of the New Covenant. That teach us about living and being led by the Holy Spirit. And when you look at Romans, chapters 1 through 6, we have this long progression of, so everybody's sinners, right? The Gentiles are sinners in Romans chapter 1. They're evil. They're without excuse. They have gone against what is even clearly taught in nature to take on that which is unnatural. Their own consciences convict them. And then in Romans chapter 2, it's like, oh, but all you religious folks. Right, so you know better, but you do the same thing. So it's worse for you. So I guess the great conclusion in Romans 3 is we're all in trouble. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. The whole world's in trouble. And then in Romans chapter 4, we're introduced to justification, being made right with God through Jesus Christ. And we have this incredible statement at the beginning of Romans 5. We therefore have peace. With God through Jesus Christ. And that while we were yet enemies of God, 
sinners. God showed his love for us in that Christ died for us. And then in Romans chapter 6, we learn that God has even dealt with the old man, that we are crucified with Christ. The only thing that matters is being in Christ. It's about being in him, in Christ, and in Christ alone. He's all of our hope. After saying all of that, let's see what Paul says about the law in Romans chapter 7. Verse 12, so the law is holy. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God. The law is good, folks. It expresses God's love. Look what Deuteronomy 33 tells us about the law being part of God's love for us. This is the blessing, uh, Deuteronomy 33, verses 1 through 4. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. So Moses is about to die, and he's reminding the people of all that's happened. His final speech, he's blessing them, and he says in verse 2, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you when Moses commanded us a law. As a possession for the assembly of Jacob. In a nutshell, it says he loved his people, so he gave him his law. Love is the fulfillment of the law on the human side. It says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So love is what drives us to keep his commandments. But we also see in Deuteronomy 33 that love is what provided the law. So what should our response be to the law of God? Psalm 119.97 says it this way. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So the law is good. The law is to be loved. It is the commandments of God that if we love God, we are to keep. Let us advance. While divine love is what provided the law, one of the primary purposes of God's law was that his authority should be maintained. So Israel has come to this place where they are now free. They have been redeemed. They have been set free from the captivity of Egypt. Who was to rule them? God says, I have the right. To rule my creation and the redeemed. I want you to notice this, the way that God starts the Ten Commandments. He begins giving them in Exodus chapter 20. Look at verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So first of all, he says, I am the Lord your God. Let's just stop there. It's a big title, it's a big name, but 
one of the things it clearly has reference to is he is the creator of it all. He is the Lord God, Jehovah God Almighty, the great I Am. That is who he is. Now the fact that he's God alone should lend enough. He deserves to be followed. Like he has the authority to say, as our creator, here's how I expect you to live. But when God gives the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, he does not just start with, I am the Lord your God, here are my commands. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He makes sure he adds that before giving them his law. And we see that God had this dual, if you will, this double reason that his people should obey his voice. Number one, he is God. He is the creator of heaven and earth. That should be enough. But number two, he has redeemed us. He has paid the cost. He has paved the way so that we could be brought back into right standing with Him, this demands a response. And this fourth section of Exodus is all about that. It's about the response of the redeemed. God demands and God expects that we respond to Him. He is God. He has redeemed us. Jesus shed his blood for you. That gives him the right to demand something of you and I. He died for us so that we could be right with God. That demands a response. And this fourth section of Exodus is all about that. Now somebody will say, what about Hebrews chapter 8, preacher? If you're not familiar with Hebrews chapter 8, it says, pointedly, without any confusion whatsoever, pointedly, that the old covenant is obsolete. In other words, it has no bearing anymore. And that the new covenant has come. All of Hebrews is actually about this truth. The whole book is about the truth that the old covenant is past. So, how is it possible that the law of God can be eternal and the old covenant be passed away? I am going to deal with that thoroughly over the next two months. And so this morning, I'm going to give a very simple answer. Some of my theologians in here will want to poke some holes in. Hold your horses and just come back for the next two months as we prove the point. But now, as our minds are focused on, you know, so how is it possible that the old covenant's passed and the law of God's eternal? Here's the simple answer. You need to understand, first of all, the Bible itself speaks of many different laws. And it refers, for example, to the law of God. The law of Moses. The law of Christ. The old covenant. The new covenant. There are different terms 
And no, they do not all refer to the exact same thing. They are certainly intertwined. They are certainly connected and related, but they are not all identical. The, what we would call the law of Moses, because Moses is here at the giving of the Ten Commandments, and so the law of God, which is the Ten Commandments, is really part of the law of Moses. But the law of Moses is to be put into three sections. It's important that you understand that. Three sections. Number one, the moral law. Number two, the civil law. And number three, the ceremonial law. Now the moral law are general principles about how we are to treat God and how we are to treat each other. When I use the word the moral law, the law of God and the Ten Commandments, I am referring to the same thing. The civil law was specifically for the government of the people of Israel. Keep in mind, so they've been led out of Egypt, right? Now you got millions of people with no governor, no king. God was supposed to be their king. You know the story. They eventually were like, yeah, we don't like this plan. Give us a king like everyone else on the earth. And Saul comes along and it's a disaster. But the plan was no king. God's their king. But you get a millions of people creating a nation. You know what you need? Civil rules, regulations, and laws. And so God gives his people civil laws. Then you have the ceremonial laws. Now the ceremonial laws were about how they were to worship, how they were to do their sacrifices, the times of year that they were supposed to hold their feasts, the, all the, downright to how the priests were supposed to be clothed. So the ceremonial laws are all about their system of worship. Their civil laws are about their code of conduct from a government standpoint. And the moral law, which I will call the law of God, and I believe when the Bible speaks of the law of God, most of the time, that's what it's referencing, are the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, have never been repealed. I'm going to demonstrate that. I'm going to talk about that a little bit this morning. When you go to Hebrews chapter 8, for example, which I've already mentioned, Hebrews chapter 10, any other book of Hebrews, chapter of Hebrews you want to go to, when you go to these passages that talk about the old covenant passing away, read it for yourself. It's very specific what it's talking about. It is the ceremonial laws of the Jews. The blood of goats and bulls, the, 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 the way of the priesthood, the, the way of worship of the old covenant way. It, it is very specific about those things. Never mentions any of the... Uh, of the moral law, of God's law, it references the ceremonial law. So it's important to understand that. This is why you'll get people that don't really know much, just trying to be problem, you know, people, problem people. They'll pull up some obscure passage in Leviticus that tells you you're not supposed to put one crop next to another crop. And one passage that tells you if you have a slave, you're supposed to treat your slave this way. Yes, we will get there and we will deal with those passages. To a degree. But, You'll get people to pull those up and be like, oh, if you believe the Bible, why don't you do this? Well, because I actually believe the Bible. And uh, it tells me this is obsolete now. 
But you've got to understand what portions of the Bible the Bible itself is referencing. You have got to understand that within the, the, the law that came through Moses, there are three divisions. You've got the Ten Commandments, and then you've got everything else. And everything else, yeah, it was for a portion of time. And we're actually going to spend the least amount of time together on the Ten Commandments. The moral law, even though it's the eternal law. You know why we're going to spend the least amount of time on it? Because it's super easy. It's just ten of them. And some of them are like six words. Real easy. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the civil law. The only, in fact, the only reason we're going to spend any time on the civil law is because I'm just confident there are a few people who need it to answer the questions of slavery, for example. People who who need to see there are actually legitimate explanations and reasons to some of the civil laws that God had to give to his people. But you know where we're going to spend most of our time? The ceremonial laws. Because the ceremonial laws all pointed forward to the new covenant. They taught us about Jesus. We're going to study the pieces of furniture that are in the tabernacle. We're going to study the, the, the difference of sacrifices. We're going, to, we're, we're going to study all of these things that come pointing forward to Jesus. We're going to spend a lot of time there, and I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be fantastic. So, the one thing I want to do this morning is simply establish that the Ten Commandments, or the moral law, God's law, still stands and has not been done away with. We will study the Ten Commandments next week. D.L. Moody said this about the Ten Commandments. The commandments given to Moses in the Mount of Horeb are as binding today as ever they have been since the time when they were proclaimed in the hearing of the people. The Jews said this law was not given in Palestine, which belonged to Israel, But in the wilderness, because the law was for all nations. I'm going to share with you this morning seven reasons the Ten Commandments are still binding on all men. And I would even argue, especially Christian men. Seven reasons. I'm going to go through these fast. I told my wife when I was putting together my notes, I literally spent four hours on the introduction we just went through. Been studying all day long, typing up. She's like, how's it going? I'm like, almost done with my intro. My points, I'm going to blast through this morning. I'm going to go through them quickly. Seven reasons the Ten Commandments are still binding. Number one, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, demand submission to our Creator's authority. This was the demand that God made upon Adam and Eve at the beginning of creation. He created them, he placed them in the garden, and God gives them a command demonstrating his authority to command his creation. If there are no commands anymore for the New Testament Christian, If there is no law, then there is really nothing to demonstrate that we are under the authority of a holy God. And so, the 
Ten Commandments themselves, the, the law of God, it demands submission to the Creator's authority. Consider that even the angels, even the angels are not beneath the regime of law. In Psalm 103, verses 20 through 22, speaking of God's angels, it says, Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones, who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers, who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So God is a God of dominion. He's a God of authority. And being under the law of God demonstrates submission to His authority. Number two, the Ten Commandments are the only portion of the law written in stone. Now that's the indicator. It's written in stone. I mean, it's demonstrates it's there for all time. So, I don't know if we'll come back to this or not in the future, so I'm just going to give you a quick tiny history lesson right now. The giving of the Ten Commandments happens, which we're going to study next week, it happens at Mount Sinai. And the, just the Ten Commandments, everybody hears it. They all hear it. It thunders from the mountain. They don't see God, but they hear it. And then the people, after hearing it, they tell Moses, like, is there any chance just you and God could talk? Because that was a little much for us. They are scared. They didn't like it. Moses then is called by God up the mountain to where God is, where God gives Moses the civil and ceremonial laws. Moses eventually comes down off the mountain and writes those on paper. Only the Ten Commandments are recorded by the finger of God on stone. Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's either verse 11 or 12 or verse 12 and 13. You want to know where it's at? Note it in your Bible. It's not in my notes. So if you want to know where it's at, just note it somewhere. There's your proof for it. Only the Ten Commandments were written in stone. It sets them apart from everything else. It sets them apart from the civil and ceremonial laws. Number three. The Ten Commandments have never been repealed. The law that is always specifically dealt with in the New Testament when it speaks of the law being obsolete, when it speaks of us not being under the law, it is always a reference to the ceremonial and civil laws of Israel. As I've already said, go read it. Hebrews chapter 8, 9, 10. Go read it for yourself and you're going to see repeatedly and specifically the ceremonial laws are always referred to. But nowhere do you ever see in any way the Ten Commandments being spoken of as if somehow they're obsolete. You will search the New Testament in vain for a single word that will announce the cancellation of the moral law. Number four, mankind still needs them. I mean, is the human nature so improved? Are we like so much better 3,000 years later we no longer need the moral law? Are men so less prone to idolatry today 
that they don't need the divine command, you shall have no other gods before me? Has the carnal mind become so refined that it no longer needs to be told, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain? Are the children of our century so marked with obedience to their parents that it's just not necessary anymore to teach that you should honor your father and your mother? Is human life treated with such sacredness now that it's not necessary to say that God declares thou shalt not kill? Has marriage become so sacredly regarded that there's no longer a need to declare you shall not commit adultery? Is the world that we live in marked with such integrity and honesty that it just seems ridiculous to need to declare you shall not steal? Rather, to me, it seems utterly obvious that the moral law of God is needed as much today as it has ever been needed in all of humankind, and it needs to be declared from every pulpit in this world. Number five, we have to consider the Lord Jesus Christ's teachings on them. Jesus clearly respected the law of God. The record of his earthly life fully bears this out. I want you to consider something with me, right? We've got the moral law or the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Then you've got the ceremonial laws and the civil laws. Jesus is asked two really significant questions in his ministry concerning the law. On one time, he's actually asked, what must I do to be saved? That's what he was asked by the rich young ruler. You know what Jesus said? You know the commandments. And he began to repeat to him, not the civil laws, not the ceremonial laws, but the moral law, the law of God. And then later, these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees were trying to find a way to accuse him and ultimately murder him, trying to get him to say anything wrong. They send somebody they think is real intelligent to try to get him tripped up in an argument, and they ask of all the laws that there are, which is the greatest? Let's look at Jesus' response. You'll find that question in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, something's really interesting here. I'm going to teach more on it next week, and I'm going to teach more on it the week after. When Jesus quotes here, when he says, what's, what's the most important law, the first thing he does is give him a reference to the first four. Because when you go look at the uh, actual Ten Commandments, none of them are that exactly. But the first four of the Ten Commandments are all about our relationship to God and can be summed up in this simple statement, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind. The next six are in relationship to one another. And you can sum those up also in one statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it's amazing when it says, Jesus, so what's the most important of all the laws? Of all these laws out there, 
He just, boom, straight to the Ten Commandments. We're going to look more at that in the week to come. But Jesus' teachings on the Ten Commandments clearly demonstrate they are not obsolete. Number six, we must consider the teachings of the New Testament epistles. As I've already said, you've got to understand the, the purpose of the New Testament epistles. And I'm not always this teachy on a Sunday morning, but for those of you that like it, good. For those of you that don't, sorry. This little section of the Bible right here, if I turn it this way, you can see it's the end of it. This little section of the Bible, most of it is called the epistles. And an epistle means it was written either to a group of people or a person with a very specific intent of teaching them something. So a, so a uh, epistle to the church is written to the church. This is why we have the book of Romans, the Hebrews, First and Second Thessalonians, Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians, Galatians. These are written to churches. They're called epistles because they're written to the churches. Then you have pastoral epistles, which were written to pastors. Timothy, for example. Titus, Philemon. Now, the purpose of these is to guide and direct either the pastors or the churches to whom they are written to, generally speaking, about how to conduct worship, doctrine, how to conduct the service of the church and discipline and who's qualified to lead and those types of things. In all of the epistles, nowhere are the Ten Commandments ever treated as obsolete. Ever. Not so with the ceremonial and civil laws. Rather, the Ten Commandments are Affirmed in the teachings of the New Testament epistles. They're often quoted. I'm running out of time this morning, unfortunately, so I've got to move fast. Uh, Romans 3.31 says this. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, do we, do we throw the law off now that we're people of faith? The answer is by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Number seven, I'm going to close here this morning. God threatens to punish those Christians who disregard his law. Let that sink in. I'm going to say it again. God threatens to punish Christians who disregard his law. Look with me at Psalm 89, verses 27 through 32. Speaking of Jesus, God says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever. Who are the offspring of Christ? The church. And his throne. As the days of the heavens, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep 
my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. This is such an interesting and important verse because clearly God is speaking about the offspring of Christ. The church that would be born from his side. And God says of that people, of the church, of the sons, of the offspring of Christ, if they break my statutes and my commandments, he's going to punish them. The Ten Commandments are clearly and rightly designated the law of God, and clearly they're important to us. They need to be followed. Now, next week, we're going to go through all of them. I'm going to ask our worship team, why don't you guys come this morning? don't know that we'll give an altar call, but I still I like us to close in a song of praise together. Next week, we're going to go through the Ten Commandments. We're going to look at each one of them. And in the week that follows, I'm very excited about this, in the week that follows, we will spend more than likely that whole morning, the same morning we have people here for um, baptism, looking at the reality that Jesus says the law is actually fulfilled through love. So what does that mean? We're going to look at that. We're going to get there. It takes time. Next week, we're going to study the commandments. For now, what we need to know is that our conduct towards God, our conduct towards each other, it comes from God. God tells us exactly how we are to be towards Him. God tells us how we are to be towards one another. And it does not matter. It's such a strange way to say it. I was going to say it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. You are still responsible to uphold God's law. To love people like God loves people. To, to love your neighbor as yourself. To love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But the statement is so absurd. Because rather than saying you're still responsible, I would argue we are more responsible as the redeemed of God to love Him enough to keep His commandments.